going into chapter 8. If you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you, you can use page 813. And if, if you're new to looking at a Bible, when we say chapter 8, we're talking about the big number, and then the verses are the little numbers beside it. It's written differently than most books you look at. And so this is a good, good reminder for you. So we'll begin in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, and we'll go to verse 17 in chapter 8. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel... Have I found such faith? I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the word of God. You may be seated. begin our time with prayer. Lord, you're showing us here that your word has power. And so when we seek to understand your word, Father, we know that we have to come to your word with, with submission. We come before your word with humble hearts, knowing that you speak to teach us, to show us who you are, so that we can be changed. But Father, we know that only happens, only happens if if, if your word is spoken with power. And so we pray this morning that your word would, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us through your word. Father, remove from me this morning any any hints of pride, any desire to make a name for myself, any desire to, um, 
to persuade by my own strength. But Father, let me just be your vessel. Let me speak your word clearly so that your people can understand it and those who are not yet your people can be made new by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're back in Matthew. Right? If you're new with us, we, we normally study books of the Bible verse by verse. It's our, our normal flow. Every now and again, we'll break from that and ask a question like, what does the Bible say about the church? Or what does the Bible say about deacons or pastors? And that's what we did for the last seven weeks. The point of all that was simply to do this, to prompt us to ask ourselves as a church, are we being faithful to God's word? Is our mission in line with Christ's mission? Is our understanding of what it means to belong to the church in line with Christ's word? Is how we understand deacons and pastors in line with the word of God? As a church, we should always be reforming, always checking ourselves against the Word of God. Always. It's what it means to live in light of Christ as Christians. And so we practice that as a church as well. But we're back in Matthew's Gospel now, and I'm excited. I've I've missed it. I needed a break, but we're back, and I'm excited because we're not finished discovering who Jesus is. And as we walk with Matthew together, I trust, I know that this will happen. I know that Jesus will become more lovely to us. And our our recognition of our need for him will increase. If, If you'll remember where we left off, right before Matthew records for us Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he told us back in 4.23, so Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, so if you're still in chapter 8, go back a couple pages. And this was, this was the setting before the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to bring this up to speed. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now what was the gospel of the kingdom? You'll remember that. You have to go back a few more verses. It was this. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That's Jesus' message. Everywhere he goes. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. That gospel message is not to be confused with the healings. The gospel is not this. Jesus will heal your diseases. That's not the gospel. The gospel message that that Jesus preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is near. The king is here. Jesus' healings revealed to the watching world, to everyone everyone following around and and watching him, those healings just showed that the kingdom was coming. It proved what Jesus said and that the king was already here. But in Matthew 4, so before the Summer on the Mount, Matthew doesn't tell us about any of those people that were healed. He simply tells us that Jesus was healing every affliction. There wasn't an ailment that he couldn't undo. There wasn't a pain he couldn't do away with or a demon he couldn't pass out. Pa- cast. <laughs> a demon he couldn't cast out. Re- reading the gospel according to Matthew, we get the idea that Jesus healed hundreds and hundreds of people. And thousands of people are following around and seeing him and they're hearing him teach. And then from there we get these three chapters filled with his teaching. 
right? Teaching that took us as a church months to unpack, many months to unpack and apply. But if we were to boil the entire Sermon of the Mount down, if we were to distill it, we would say that Jesus was teaching us that true righteousness, true obedience to God comes from a heart that's been made new. And that new heart only comes through faith in Christ. And so now here we are, and for today and the next few weeks, we'll be in Matthew's chapters 8 and 9, and we're about to learn about 11 people who were healed by Jesus, physically healed by Jesus. Out of all of the hundreds and hundreds of people that Jesus physically healed throughout his ministry, 11 of them are of particular interest to Matthew. Later on, he'll tell us about a few more. But for now, he zooms the lens of his gospel in on these particular people, these, these handful of healings. So what's so special about these? Jesus raised people from the dead. He made more than a few lame people walk. He gave sight to who knows how many blind people. He certainly healed more serious ailments than this fever of Peter's mother-in-law. So what's so special about these healings? The answer is this. And this is sort of the, not sort of, this is the purpose of today's sermon, okay? So listen, this is the main point. These healings reveal to us Something about who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. These healings tell us that Jesus is God and that he has come to accomplish something greater than the healings. All right? The healings tell us that Jesus is God and he's come to accomplish something greater than just these healings. The way that Matthew ends the Sermon on the Mount sort of sets this up for us. Look carefully at verses 28 and 29 from chapter 7. It says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He had authority. And so when Matthew ends the Sermon on the Mount that way and then begins this next section, he's showing us that we're to read Matthew chapter 8 in light of verse 29. We're to see that everything Jesus is doing here is in light of this truth about his authority. He wants us to see it, not just hear it. Remember, Matthew's aim in in writing this gospel is not to just scrapbook a bunch of stuff Jesus did. It's not the point. This isn't newspaper clippings about Jesus' life that just remind us of the good old days. This is the gospel according to Matthew. That that word has weight. That means it's a carefully painted picture of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So when we run across healings and miracles as we're reading this book, even when we see teachings and parables and challenges and answers to challenges, every person mentioned, the way that they're described, where they are geographically, all these details, they're not arbitrary. Matthew's included them for a reason. They're all threads that the Holy Spirit, through Matthew's unique perspective, is weaving together to show us who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So with that in mind, let's look at these three miracles this morning. The first is this 
This cleansing of the leper. You'll you'll notice that as we begin chapter 8. Right off, you you pick up on this idea that that this happens immediately following the sermon. Alright, so he's up on the mountain teaching. Sermon on the mountain. He finishes with this hard word and, and no invitation. And the crowds are astonished at his authority. And then he comes down the mountain and people are following him. And then this unnamed leper breaks every social norm, every, every cultural and legal norm, and he fights his way through the crowd, and he comes to Jesus, and he kneels before him. Now, now any Jew reading Matthew's gospel would know that this man shouldn't be here to begin with. There are two entire chapters in Leviticus on how to deal with this man's disease, and, and being in a crowd of people isn't, isn't one of the ways that we deal with this disease. Probably the most important thing about leprosy is what the law teaches in, in Leviticus 13, 46. So you get two chapters, and this one is right in the middle. It says concerning a leprous man, He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This this leper has no business being with this crowd of people. He's unclean. He's an outcast. And and yet here he is. And and he's run up to Jesus and he kneels before him. Some of your translations, if you're looking at the King James, it says he worshipped him. His posture before Jesus is one of submission. He's recognizing Jesus as Lord. And look what he says to him. Lord... If you will, you can make me clean. The leper hears the words of Jesus and he recognizes in the words of Jesus from that Sermon on the Mount that this is someone with authority. I want you to see this. Don't read this as separate from the Sermon on the Mount because it's not. Matthew wants us to see this. This leprous man is responding to the power of the words of Christ. That is what has given him faith. The word of Christ is what stirs up faith in this man. Christ's preaching is what leads this leper to bow down before Jesus and call him Lord. This is Romans 10.17 in action, isn't it? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's exactly what's happening here. This man has heard the word of Christ and he now has faith. And his faith is not that Jesus has the power to heal. He recognizes that that Jesus is greater than that. He believes that Jesus is Lord. There's a difference there. And he knows that Jesus being Lord means that if it is his will, because he's sovereign, if it is his will, he can heal. Or rather, he can make this man clean. Now watch how Jesus responds. Look at verse 3 with me. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now Jesus' word has authority. We already know that. The entire Sermon of the Mount was showing us that Jesus' word has authority. And we'll see that even even more clearly in in this next miracle. 
Jesus could have just spoken. And this man's leprosy could have been cleansed. In Luke 17, we see this happening. Ten lepers come to Jesus and stand at a distance, and they ask Jesus to have mercy on them. And in that episode, Jesus didn't touch them. He just spoke. He says, go, show yourself to the priests. And all ten of them were healed. Jesus' word alone has power. But here, with this leper, Jesus' word is not alone, is it? It's not alone. He touches the man. Matthew is not, he's not shy about describing what's taken place. He wants us to see that this is a deliberate touch. It's not a brush of the shoulder. He reaches out his hand. He stretches out his hand. And he lays it on this kneeling man. There's no, there's no mistaking what's happening here. Everyone saw it. Jesus, this man who said he has come to fulfill the law, he has touched an unclean man now. He should, I mean, if you're watching, you would say, surely if you knew the law, you would know not to touch the guy. Were Jesus a priest or a prophet or he any other ordinary Jew? He would now be unclean. His touching the man would have defiled him. According to the law, anyone touching a leper would just result in two unclean people. But but Jesus touching a leper creates two clean people, doesn't it? Not not only does Jesus' word have greater authority than the scribes and the priests, but so does his touch. The holiness, the purity of Jesus is unaffected by the uncleanness of this man. And we, we see this over and over again with Jesus. This is something that we're supposed to see in the Gospels. He touches the outcast. He eats and drinks with sinners. And not just run-of-the-mill sinners. Despised the worthless people. In a few weeks, we'll see Jesus welcome in Matthew, the tax collector, a hated man. In Luke's gospel, a prostitute washes Jesus' feet with her hair. And yet Jesus is never made unclean. He's never made unclean by his interactions with people until the cross. At the cross, Jesus willingly takes our guilt and sin and shame, all of our uncleanness on himself. At the cross, he isn't unaffected. Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, that's God, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The holy and righteous Jesus speaks and touches this unclean man and Jesus is unmarred. But when Jesus takes on our sin, he's marred beyond recognition, isn't he? And he dies so that we could truly be made clean. We're about to see that happen as we keep going in this text. In the last verse, Jesus tells the man to go to the priest and offer the the gift that Moses commanded him. 
The law says the man, because he's been cleansed of his leprosy, has a sacrifice to make before he can be with other people. And so Jesus is saying to him, go make that sacrifice. You want to read about it? Read Leviticus 13 and 14. We're not going to go there today. It's an interesting process. But Jesus is one who is all about fulfilling the law. And so he wants to show, I want you to fulfill the law here. Follow up on what you're supposed to do. Do what Moses has commanded you. Now the second encounter, after the leper, we get this encounter with this centurion. So already we have an unclean man, and now we have a centurion. A centurion is a Roman officer in charge of 100 men, hence century. Right? You see it? And Matthew wants to see that this man is a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's another outsider. The leprous man is an outsider. The Gentile is an outsider. He's not a Jew. And then this man, when he comes to Jesus, he gets straight to the point. He doesn't mess around. Look at verse 5 with me. He comes forward to him, and in verse 6 he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Again, look what he calls him, Lord. This is the second person now who has come to Jesus calling him Lord. And in verse 7, Jesus replies, I will come and heal him. And this is interesting, because you can imagine the crowds have just seen him touch a leprous man. And now he's saying, I'm going to go to your house, Gentile, and come into your house. This is the home of a Gentile. This is two taboo things that Jesus is saying he's going to do here. But he doesn't even get the opportunity to go to the man's house. The centurion stops him and basically preaches this little sermon for us on Christology. He says there, beginning in verse 8, Lord, so again, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So let me show you for a minute all the true things that this man just said about Jesus. First, he calls him Lord. I'm going to keep saying that because this is very significant. That means he is recognizing that Jesus, at the very least, has authority over him. And I believe he's saying even more than that. This isn't just Jesus' authority over a Roman officer. I think both that this man and the leper are saying Jesus is God by calling him Lord. Lord is the word people used instead of saying Yahweh. This, this, is, this is their word for describing God himself. And they're calling Jesus Lord. It's meant to be an echo from the Sermon on the Mountain when people would come to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord. Do you remember that? Lord, Lord. We have two people that have come to Jesus saying, Lord. So, Lord, Lord. That Matthew's echoing the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, second truth. Not, not only is this man teaching us that Jesus is God, he recognizes that Jesus' word has power. Either he heard Jesus preach, or he heard people talk about his preaching. Either way, the centurion knows that Jesus' word alone has power. What does he say? He says, only say the word. 
The, the Greek literally says only say one word. He knows that with one word, Jesus can heal the servant. The third truth about Jesus that this man testifies to is that Jesus is a man of delegated authority. So Jesus is God, his word has power, and he's a man of delegated authority. He says there in verse 9, or I'm going I'm to paraphrase, he says to Jesus, I recognize that you're like me. When I tell a soldier to do something, they do it because I speak on behalf of Caesar. I'm a man under Caesar's authority. I have authority delegated to me by Caesar. Everyone knew that to disobey a centurion was to disobey Caesar. And this man recognizes that to disobey Jesus is to disobey God. Because Jesus is a man under God's authority. Three essential truths of the Christian faith that I wish all of us knew and understood and repeated daily. All spoken right here by an enemy of Israel. Jesus is Lord, his word has power, and he has been given authority from God. That means he has authority over us. It's no wonder what Jesus' response is in verse 10. Look there with me. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, and he's not just speaking to the centurion, he's speaking to everyone here because he is astonished. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus can almost just stop and let this man do the rest of his teaching for him, can't he? That's what he's been trying to show people, and yet nobody has gotten it yet, including his followers, including the teachers of Israel. But this uncircumcised Gentile soldier gets it. It's plain as day to this man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus doesn't finish. Look what he says in in verse 11. He continues after pronouncing to everyone this man's faith. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's saying that, that in that feast of the bridegroom, that end times wedding supper of the Messiah that we read about in Isaiah 25, with the good meat and the good wine, that great feast, Jesus is teaching that there will be Gentiles there. That's what he means by people coming from the east and the west. They'll be reclining at the table right there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in that eternal kingdom. To put it more clearly, he's saying, the true children of God are those who are there by faith. They're not there because of who their earthly parents are. They're there because they've been brought into Christ through faith, adopted into sonship to the Heavenly Father. The people who are banking on their family heritage will not be there. Look at verse 12. The sons of the kingdom 
will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about hell. Those who are hoping in their Jewish heritage to get them to heaven will receive judgment instead. In the same way, those who think that God will receive them into his eternal kingdom because their mom and dad went to church, they won't be there. It doesn't matter if your dad was a deacon. It doesn't matter if you were dedicated as a baby in a church building. It doesn't matter if you went through some baptistic ritual when you were 13. That's not what saves you. The centurion has looked upon Jesus and he's recognized that he's the son of God and he believes. He believes. He believes in who Jesus is. That means because his faith is real, he's going to worship him as Lord. He's going to love him and trust him and because he trusts him, he's going to live with Christ's word out in front of him. And him following behind He's going to live in obedience to Christ because of the faith that he has in Christ. And his faith is is not that his servant can be healed. His faith is not that he would have a better life. His faith isn't even that he would one day be in heaven. His faith is that Jesus is the Son of God and he's worthy of all our devotion and worship. And and with that, Jesus is telling us all that salvation in him goes beyond Israel. Matthew is showing us here how Jesus fulfills what we read earlier in Isaiah 25. I want to look at that again. Look at Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples all peoples. Who's that? Everybody in the world. All nations will be represented there. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. See what's happening in that passage? All of Jesus' people will be there. People from all over the world. Israelites like the leper, like that outsider leper, And Romans, like that centurion, there will be Americans there and Guatemalans there. There will be Russians there. There will be North Koreans there. All the people who receive Jesus Christ as Lord will be at that feast. And death will be no more. That's a future promise. But Jesus is is giving a glimpse of it for us. He's giving us a glimpse of the future promise. This morning, he wants to show us that in that coming kingdom, in that feast that we'll all have together, this centurion will be there with Abraham. And in verse 13, Jesus says to the centurion, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. At which moment? The moment Jesus spoke. The servant was healed not by the faith of this man. The servant was healed by the word of Jesus. Jesus spoke. And the same voice that brought creation into existence brings new life to this young servant. 
What Jesus says happens. Well, the last encounter is a little bit different. Actually, it's very different. <laughs> it's, it's short, for one. It's only two verses. And secondly, no words are exchanged here. They walk into the house. Jesus sees the mother-in-law. Jesus touches her hand, and she gets up to serve him. That's it. No lesson. There's no conversation. There, there's not a whole lot we can draw out of this. This is actually a very unusual healing. Maybe, maybe Jesus just loves the unlovable so much that he even loves mother-in-laws. <laughs> maybe Jesus wants us to show, wants us to see that the best interaction between a young man and a mother-in-law is no speaking. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. <laughs> well, here's the thing. They're, they're in Capernaum. They need a sort of headquarters. Peter's house makes the most sense, and so that's where they land. Right? With Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law now healthy, and the disciples now well-fed by her, now they can minister to others who are coming in. So this gets us to verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, word, and he healed all who were sick. See, the power of Jesus' word is again on display, isn't it? We just cannot miss this in these passages this morning. Remember, we're supposed to see his authority in action. This is it. With a word, with one word, Jesus can command demons and they obey. And now Matthew tells us the point of all this. This was to show us how we could all do miracles. No, that's not the point. This was to show us that if we believed enough, then Jesus would always heal us. That's not the point. Look at what Matthew says. Look in verse 17, because this is where he sums up the entire passage we've read this morning. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. That's why Matthew has included these healings. This was to point us to who Christ is. This was to fulfill what Isaiah said would happen. My, Matthew is drawing from Isaiah 53. Now, if, if you're new with us, you need to know this. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he draws from Isaiah over and over and over and over again. I, I hope those who were with us beginning in last, last November, I guess, Remember that? As we looked through the genealogy and we have everything we read about Jesus, Matthew is going back to Isaiah. He's going back to Isaiah, and he's not done. He's drawing here from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But, but if you know Isaiah 53, and, and I know we read it at church last week, you know that that prophecy does not end with Jesus taking griefs and sorrows. Or as Matthew puts it, our illnesses and diseases. There's more there. There's a lot more in Isaiah 53. And Matthew, by dropping this hint for us, is, is supposed to be jogging our memories as to what happens in Isaiah 53. Let's look at the rest of Isaiah 53, verse 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These healings that we just read about, the leper, the servant, the mother-in-law, all the rest of these people that were brought to Jesus in Capernaum, Matthew wants us to see that the point is not simply that they were healed. I think we we, we sometimes read the Bible that way. And when we do it, we, we miss. We miss who Jesus is because we get caught up in the action. But the action tells a story. Matthew says, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is the Christ. He's the divine son of God. He's the suffering servant who's come to take away our sins. He's putting that in bold and he's circling it and he's highlighting it by quoting Isaiah 53. The point is not that people were healed. The point is that because these people were healed... We're to see that Jesus is the Christ. See, each one of these people that Jesus comforted in our text this morning, we will not hear from them again in Scripture. They all eventually died. Their their healings were temporary. Even the people that Jesus will resurrect, people like Lazarus in John's Gospel, or, or the little girl in Mark's Gospel, Their interrupted deaths are just temporary. What Matthew is telling us here is that these healings are meant to show us that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The the one who comforted his people by healing them, bearing their griefs and sorrows for a little while. But Isaiah says ultimately he was rejected by his people. And despite that rejection and betrayal, he's going to truly heal his people by dying for them. See, our our enemy is not paralysis or cancer or the flu or AIDS or heart disease or Ebola or dementia. Our enemy is death. Given enough time, humanity will find cures for all the hundreds of forms of cancer. Eventually, we'll have more cures for heart disease and cures for Alzheimer's. I have no doubt that science can help us to overcome the many, many, many ailments that plague us. But science and medicine cannot overcome death. We can't. There's an old story about a Danish king in England from 1035 A.D. His name was Canute. Have you heard of him? He died when he was only 40, but while he lived, legend has it that he tried to control the tides. He stood on the beach wearing his crown, and in his most authoritative voice, he commanded that the high tides not come in. His pants got wet. (laughs) He couldn't command the tides, and we can't command death. 
Death is our enemy. It's not here by accident. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as death came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is our enemy. We're born into sin because we willingly sin. As Isaiah said it, we've all gone astray. We've all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. The wages of sin is death. We can get rid of every disease in the world and we'll still have to deal with death from old age and death from accidents and death from natural disasters. We can make laws that stop people from owning guns and knives and sticks. But that won't go far enough because we'll still have ropes and vines and sporks. So we can make laws where everybody everywhere must live inside plastic cages so that we can never hurt anybody anywhere. And we still will not have solved the problem of death, will we? Because death is the result of sin. And it's sin that dwells within us. And we're powerless over that sin in us. We are in bondage to it. So sin, then, is ultimately our problem. And it's sin that must be dealt with. And so Isaiah tells us that the Lord laid on this suffering servant the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. And Matthew is telling us here in our passage, that's who Jesus is. All of these healings are to point to Jesus, not as a miracle worker, not as a prophet, not as someone who had just enough Holy Spirit power to do these healings. They're they're not about some mysterious exchange where we have a little faith and God gives us a little healing. These stories point to Jesus as our Savior because they point to Jesus as the one who deals with sin. Listen, this morning, if you think, if only... If only I didn't have arthritis, then my life would be better. If only I didn't get these migraines, then my life would be better. If I, if I didn't have this back pain, or if only there was no cancer, then everything would be okay. If Jesus would just take away that, all of that, well then what? Friend, Listen, Jesus has already taken away far more than you can imagine. He has taken away the one thing that stands in between you and eternity with God, and it's not sickness. He's taken upon himself our sin. The death he died, he died to sin. He took the power of sin to the grave and to prove it, to to prove that Jesus killed the power of sin, he rose from the grave. And when Jesus did that, when Christ was resurrected, he gave us hope. One day when Christ returns, he'll finally kill death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 20, 14 says that Christ's return, he'll throw death into the lake of fire. 
He'll destroy it. And what we read in Isaiah 25, he will abolish death forever. We look forward to that day together. For now, we live in faith and hope that that day is coming. If you're looking for Christ to heal your sicknesses, you've missed who Christ is. He can do it. Yes, he can. But he, he's come to take away your sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us who our Savior is. God, where would we be without your word? We'd be lost in our own imagination of who you are. We'd be making up idols left and right. We thank you for your word, that you can keep us focused on the person of Jesus Christ, that our faith would be not in the power of Christ, but in Christ himself. That we would believe you when you say to us, we are forgiven in Christ. Father, increase our faith. Cause us to just wander in Christ. For anyone here right now, Father, who who isn't trusting in this Christ, the one who forgives sins, God, give them faith. Give them faith. Because I can't. And their friends cannot, we cannot persuade them unless they hear the power of your word spoken. Speak to them. Yes, this in Christ's name. Amen. Can our servers come down here? Today is the first Sunday of the month, which means today that we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper means many, many things to us as Christians. But most importantly, it reminds us that we together are one in Christ. And it points us forward to that great supper we talked about. So we give you crackers. (laughs) And we give you juice. Not rich marrow meat. Not well-aged wine. Well, this is just not aged that long. <laughs> but, but the idea is that we're looking forward to that great feast together. When we'll be together, all those who are in faith together in Christ will share in that meal together. And so if, you, if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, then that means you're not looking forward to that great feast with Christ. And so for you to share in this table this morning would be a lie. So what we ask you this morning, we're, we're grateful that you're here. We look forward to welcoming you into faith with us. And we'd love to talk to you more about the faith that we have in Christ. But as these elements go by today, we just ask that you would refrain. This is a family meal. This is something that, that means a lot to us because it has been given to us by Jesus Christ himself. For, for the rest of us, those who are trusting in Christ, 
This is a meal that reminds us of the unity that we share together in Christ. All right, so, so if there is sin that is keeping you from another brother or sister in Christ this morning, here's what you do. Let the plate pass you by this morning. Because if you are holding on to sin that is keeping you from unity with other Christians, then for you to take the bread and the cup together would be a lie. But here's another thing. If you struggle with sin, this plate and cup are for you. If you struggle against sin, looking forward to the day when that struggle is no struggle anymore, this is for you because Christ offers his forgiveness to you this morning. All right? One reminder, as as the plates are coming around, you'll pick this up individually, but then we'll all take it together as one body.
pray. Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank that you have given us a Savior who's broken for us to do something that we could never accomplish on our own. And we thank you that you've revealed to him to us as Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat.
pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you have an eternal covenant where we we don't have to do anything. The law is kept in Christ. The promise is kept in Christ. All the grace comes through Christ. We thank you for this. We thank you for the new covenant in Christ's blood. Thank you for the faith that you give us. In Jesus' name. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. One of the things that we talked about that the Lord's Supper represents to us is our oneness as a body together. And so one of the things that we do together as a church is provide for one another. On the days that we have communion together, the first Sunday of the month, we also have a benevolence offering. So on your way out, the deacons will be there with, with plates if, you've, if you would like to give to, to the benevolence of others in the church. So this goes to help people pay their rent. It goes to help people pay medical bills. helps people meet needs that they wouldn't otherwise be able to meet. So this is how we love one another. One of the many ways we love one another as a church. Dustin, would you close us in song tonight? Today.